This morning the reading is taken from Romans chapter 8. It's on page 1145 of the Church Bibles. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 28. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For, on, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what one already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Amen. So the question we have been asking all summer is, what on earth did following Jesus look like before new wine? I mean, I mean how did they do it? What was it like for people in different situations, different times, um, different places sometimes? What did it look like for them to say yes to this invitation to follow Jesus? We've been scaling back across 2,000 years, these 2,000 years since Jesus walked and died and was resurrected and ascended. And ever since we've been figuring out the implications of this world-changing event. We've got back this week as far as the 6th century. We have a little slide. Unfortunately, my epic Lord of the Rings font hasn't transferred. Schoolboy error, I'll, I'll get it right next time. But um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible sort of 21st century font that we're going to have to deal with. But never mind. Um, first world problems, as they say. So, Tanakh and St. Kentigan um, are our, our heroes this week. With a bit of a problem, though, 
having got back as far as the 6th century, is that um, we've arrived at the beginning of the Dark Ages. So-called Dark Ages, because they weren't so great at writing stuff down and keeping it. We don't have a very accessible historical record. We don't, with much certainty, know much about what went on in this time. And the story of um, St. Kentigan is no exception to that. St. Kentigan, along with his mother, Tanach, um, the action took place in Scotland. St. Kentigan is also known as St. Mungo, whom the well-read among you will know uh, features in Harry Potter, as in St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. You know it? I've been tweeting J.K. Rowling all week to try and get her to, to give me some tips on St. Mungo, but she's ignored me uh, once again. Okay, our, our, our main source, let me just tell you about the sort of approaching the, the history of, you know, a life of a saint in the Dark Ages. Our main source for this is a little better than J.K. Rowling, um, it's a, but it is a 12th century monk called Jocelyn. Um, Jocelyn was a Cistercian about the same time as Aelred from last week. Maybe they were mates, I don't know. Um, but he has written up, he's our main source of information. He himself was combining a few earlier sources and, and actually scholars can tell from the way that he's combined them and how some of the same events contain characteristic Gaelic and Britonic vocab in the same moment suggests that these separate sources from different traditions were remembering the same events which gives some sort of credence to the sort of historical plausibility perhaps, but that's the level of historicity that we're dealing with. All of that to say, I have felt full permission to uh, rewrite the story of Tanakh and St. Kentigan for my purposes, and it beautifully unpacks Romans 8, uh, our scripture that Andy read, as we will see. Um, before we get to story time, though, we have first a brief geography lesson and a brief history lesson to endure and then your reward will come. So first onto the geography, I have a degree in geography and I know that the first thing you need for geography is a map. Here's where our action takes place. This is Scotland, you have got the, um, you can't really see it but on the left you've got the River Clyde uh, upon which you've got Glasgow um, today and then on the right hand side that sort of cut in of water that's called the Firth of Forth and on the south banks of that you have got Edinburgh. Um, now, back in the day, oh, you can't really see it. I'll just draw it for you. There is a very thin red line that goes like this. That is the ancient province of Lothian, one of these petty kingdoms back in the day. Um, that is where the action happens. Um, on the sort of east coast of the ancient kingdom of Lothian back in the day um, on this volcanic outcrop of rock known today as Trepane, Trepane Law. Has anyone been there? You can do climbing and things there now. Um, we've, got, we've got one tourist to Trepane Law at the back. Um, fishermen still know it by its ancient name of Dunpelder. Uh, this will bear some significance later on. Um, so that's something to take note of. Um, that's enough geography for us. Uh, history, we're on to our history lesson now. We're flying. How did Christianity first come to these islands? We don't really know when the first Christian missionaries arrived. One monk 
named Gildas writing around this sort of 6th century time. He suggests, claims that it was as early as AD 37. Presumably some of the sort of traders, Christian traders within the Roman Empire, although it was, you know, illegal, uh, would be um, using these trade routes coming into Britain, telling them about, telling people about this news. Gradually, things must have emerged. By the beginning of the 4th century, we know that we've got an archaeological record of some church infrastructure, and we know things were organized enough for the British church to send a couple of bishops to one of these big church European synod get-together things. Only just established enough, however, because the British delegates were forced, we know that they were forced to beg uh, the, the sort of brothers in Europe, the other church bishops and leaders there, beg them for their the, the means, the resources that they needed to get home. So they were not rolling in it. Things were not um, big and wonderful just yet. Um, but that was about the 4th century. By the 5th century, you've got St. Patrick, and he's doing his big mission all across Ireland. By the 6th century, um, Columba, who comes back from Ireland, um, establishes his base on Iona and uses that to preach the gospel all across the north um, of Britain. Um, into the 6th century, you've got someone like Aidan. This early Celtic Christianity often existed by permission of the local king. Um, there it had this wide Celtic intuition of the wonder and the connection of of all of the created order of our place within that. It was also um, surprisingly biblical, um, definitely Trinitarian, basically this brave, orthodox expression of the faith that we are jumping into the world of this morning. That's enough history. Let's get on to story time. So if you're sitting comfortably, I will begin. These are the memoirs of Tanakh, daughter of the king. I remember standing on Dunpelder Hill. I must have been just 15 that summer, with my arms outstretched, feeling the sun on my back. The wind tickled the hairs on my arms as I worshipped the high king of heaven, tasting the glorious freedom of the children of God. And to think that was the very same rock that they were to hurl me off just a year following. What happened was, well, it all began when Columba himself had passed through Lothian. That's my father's dominion. My father was King Loth, and he invited Columba, who he assumed to be some exotic wandering druid, to come and uh, address the entire clan. (laughs) Well, I remember my father's drunken smile falling into an angry frown, just as Columba began referring to the one true king, King Jesus, who stood far above the sun, moon and stars, and every other god, and every other king. Well, poor old Columba didn't get much further than that before my father got his men and strung him up by his arms and legs to be gagged and ridiculed for the rest of the night. I was captivated, however, by the strength of hope in this man's eyes. So as the others ate and drank, I uh, climbed the tree next to him and I took out his gag and I began asking him my questions. I didn't stop with my questions all summer long. Being the princess of Lothian had its perks. So I begged my father that this Columba the Clown be made to entertain me uh, all summer long. So it wasn't long, of course, before 
I believed with my heart and confessed with my mouth that Jesus Christ was indeed the High King of Heaven. And it was like the dawn breaking within me as I awakened to the great love at the centre of it all as intimacy and courage and grace poured into my life. But how little understanding I had back then. Tanakh, the young maid. Perhaps Columba saw better than I what was coming. Because before he would baptise me, he made me learn these particular words of Holy Scripture. That we are adopted as children of God. So our present sufferings do not compare with the coming glory. And as we open to his love, he works every detail of our lives into something good. It was at the solstice that I told my father of my trust in the king of love. And that same day I told him I wanted nothing to do with the betrothal that had been made for me. Well, he took the royal rings off my finger right there and then and sent me out to go and live amongst the swineherds. Still to this day, I think that he thought just to shock me back in to his pagan expectations. That was until that dreadful man found out where I was, the one I'd been set to marry. I cannot speak of the devastation of that dark day, only, only to say that he came and he ripped away what he snarled belonged to him, but in truth was only ever mine to give. The cold, numb weeks then followed, as I lay awake each long sleepless night terrified of that flutter in my belly must just be my imagination no by spring the flutter was a kick and my belly was a melon word got back to my father whose honour as I feared demanded my ruin eventually the men came and with a great sadness they took me up dumpeld a rock with barely a pause they carried out their terrible duty pushing my swollen body off the edge. In that moment as I fell, I must have cried out to the Lord God of it all, for surely he softened rocks and sent angels to catch my head, to cushion my child and steer my fall. I was supposed to die that day, but by God's grace and no doubt Columba's prayers, when the men came down to fetch my body, they found me there, sat up straight with but a single graze on my arm. I remember the men were all shaking and scared. But in that moment, a sacred peace held me steady. They were too frightened to take me up and try again. Clearly the gods were not with King Loth, they muttered. So instead, they opted to march me down Avalady Bay to set me adrift in a coracle. Without paddle or sail, the cold sea took me out and I drifted up the firth. Again, I cried out to the god of it all, but this time... Though his rain quenched my thirst, his sacred peace was not to be found out on those angry waves. Terrified, I cried out for the senseless waste of it all, for the waste of my body, for the waste of my life, for the waste of this bitter life growing within me. The coracle beached up on Fife, but the relief of having the solid earth under my toes was short-lived as suddenly I knew that my child was coming. All alone on that beach, I laboured with just this upended coracle for a shelter. When the baby came, I met him with tears of joy, but rapidly the fears crept over me. My fragile, fragile son, born into nothing, with nothing,
probably for a nothing of a life. That was when the monks found us and they carried us back up to Kilross. Father Surf, with his fiery red hair, he took us in. He demanded no explanations. And with his unfailing kindness, he embraced us as part of their family. Some weeks later, when my strength had returned, the good Father Surf, he took me aside and he asked whether he might be able to baptize the child. I felt sick in my stomach. There's there's something I need to tell you about him, I said. I've I've had no husband. The father he he doesn't have a father. In my shame I dared not look up at the holy monk. But he did a remarkable thing. He held out his hand with its crooked fingers and brush of red hair. Look here, he said. See, I've got my father's bent fingers and my mother's red colours. You didn't know my parents, but everyone who did agreed. And looking back, I can see it's clear that theirs was a marriage that should never have been. It was a miserable mistake of a marriage. This hand with the crooked fingers and the red hair, in a sense, should never have been. I should never have been, he said. He said, the thing is, likely even the most proud born of us need only look back two or three generations and find out that we are all the sons and daughters of error, of scandal, and perhaps even worse. But my dear Tanner, he said, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. We're all bastards. But God loves us anyway. He loves us. He specifically adopts us into his family. And what's more, he said, within the redemptive majesty of the love of God, nothing is wasted. He can take any mistake-ridden mess and bring out of it the most beautiful music. All senseless, senseless loss can be sweetly restored In his senseless love, mindless evil, he hijacks for good. Suffering, he transforms into glory. No tear is wasted, and all pain will be abundantly consoled. Sometimes we hope for what we do not see. Sometimes we see in part, all the time, as we open to his adopting love. We know that he is working every detail in our lives for good. So, my dear Tanakh, he said, daughter of the one true king, the answer to your unsaid question is a resounding yes. Yes, we would count it the greatest of honours to baptise the dear little one into the majesty of God's love. So the very next day, my dear son was baptised Kentigan. Though Father Surf continued to call him his dear one, or in Gaelic, that's Mungo. So little Kentigan grew up in the knowledge and the laughter of the Lord's love, and he flourished 
You flourished there amongst the community of the brothers. We both did. And I write this now on the eve of his departure. In this, his 23rd year, he has been called and chosen to extend the work of the Lord westwards into Strathclyde. So, my dear Mungo, in the eternal love of the sacred three, may the road rise up to meet you. In short, what happened to Mungo? Well, he made it over to the banks of the Clyde and he set up his new community there. And it became known as the the Deer Family, or Glasgow. Steadily, uh, the work there grew over the years until a shift in the local political situation meant that um, uh, persecution broke out and he was forced to walk away from his life's work, forced to flee south towards Wales. Once again, though, we see that the redemptive majesty of the Lord has so very little respect for the intentions of all that would seek to destroy or corrupt. For if you go on Google Maps and you type in St. Kentigan, you, you quickly see that all the way down, let's skip on a couple of slides, all the way down the west coast of England, there is this rash of churches that bear his dedication that he left in his wake as he fled south. Eventually, the political situation shifted and he was able to uh, return back to his dear family, uh, to Glasgow. And his prayer for Glasgow was this. Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of thy word and by the praising of thy name. And which is why the Glasgow coat of arms carries not only some of his symbols, but the abbreviated um, bit, let Glasgow flourish. As the fabric of our nation bears witness to the power of God's redeeming love. Let's believe that no mess of conception, no parental rejection, no personal devastation, no collapse of our life's work, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In a sense, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. And as we open to his love, to the majestic, redeeming glory of his love, the most beautiful the most beautiful music emerges paul writes that even when we don't get it even when we don't understand even when we don't know how to pray god's spirit himself is interceding for us through it all thrusting forward this tide of majestic redemption into our lives and so that's why we can be so sure that he's taking every detail of it all and working it into his goodness. Shall we stand? Just before we pray... um, feel led to say there's that phrase Jesus saves often misunderstood phrase Jesus saves it's not about getting a name on a list for some strange disembodied choir after you die 
It's about God putting together all things, leading all things into the fullness that they were already uh, always intended for, that tragically things have derailed and gone wrong and terrible mess has ensued. But out of that, God brings his salvation. And it begins now. And we taste something of that freedom now. We have something of that redemption, that purpose being thrust back into things. That beauty, that meaning, that hope being put back, ourselves being put back together in his beautiful purposes. So maybe you've never responded to that off-putting phrase, Jesus saves. Maybe this morning is a moment for you to do just that. To say yes, to open a door to this tide of love that is for you. That is for you in ways you can't imagine. So let's pray. Lord, we see your beauty. We glimpse something of what you're up to, of how you do things, of how good you are. Our hearts break for the tragedy of this world, the mess of things, and for our part in that we are sorry. but we want to open the door to your love. We turn to you. We say yes to you. We confess that Jesus is the high king of heaven. That he is the one at the center of it all that you came in him to show us just what you're like. That you came in him to die. And you poured out forgiveness. So now we say yes to your offer of new life. We say yes to your tide of love not imagining that this insulates us from the problems, but knowing that on that deep, true, eternal level that is beginning right now, you are good. And you're working all things for our good.